If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open up with me to Daniel chapter 3. Hallelujah. Amen. Come on. Man, we're excited to open up God's Word tonight. And look at Daniel chapter 3, and I, if you're taking notes, I hope that you are. There's a few things that I want to send you home with tonight. And if you're taking notes, at the top of your notes, I want you to go ahead and write the sermon title for tonight. We're continuing our series, Imperfect People, Perfect God. And the first two weeks, we know we were off for Labor Day last week, but the first two weeks we talked about culture versus Christ. And then the week after that, we talked about apathy versus desire. So we're kind of looking at these and or situations. We're looking at these versus situations and looking at what Scripture says about them. Well, tonight, let me give you what what we're going to cover. It's this. It's entitlement versus gratitude. Entitlement versus gratitude. A very, what I believe, pivotal message in the series. And it's a topic that you don't necessarily hear a lot about. Now, for me, man, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I've been here my whole life. I had a love-hate relationship with birthday parties when I was growing up. I don't know if yours was the same, but birthday parties could be wins or losses for me. I wasn't the most extroverted kid, so going to birthday parties was sometimes terrifying because you never know who to talk to. You never know who to sit with. Uh, That stuff sticks with you, man. And uh, I had a love-hate relationship with birthday parties. And for me, this past week, as I was working over this sermon, I thought about one of the birthday parties that my mom and dad threw for me. Now, I was a big Toy Story fan. Like, every single birthday party was Toy Story themed for me. Uh, I love Buzz Lightyear. I always have, man. I don't know where you stand on it, but I love Buzz Lightyear. I'm talking about the old school Buzz Lightyear, not this new remake. I'm talking about the toy, all right? <laughs> Amen. And, uh, man, I love Toy Story. I mean, I'll never forget one of the birthday parties I had. I mean, I couldn't have been more than eight years old. I had a bunch of friends come over. We was hanging out, we was playing games, we was playing the PlayStation and stuff, and we was hanging out, we were watching movies. And a lot of the kids went home, and then there was like a couple other kids who were going to stay the night and kick it with me. And man, this one kid, I'm not going to say his name, because you know, you, you never know, he might be watching a live stream. I'm not going to say his name, but he was at the birthday party and he was staying the night with us. Now in my room, we were figuring out like the sleeping arrangements and how we were going to handle this. And in my room, my dad had set up a few options. We had my bed. We had a really great, incredible futon, super comfortable. My dad even blew up an air mattress to put on the floor. So, bro, we got options. And, man, I'll never forget this at eight years old. It wasn't a huge deal, but it kind of shocked me. We walked in the room to get ready for bed, and this kid, he walks into my room on my birthday party, and this is what he does. He goes, I call dibs on the bed. (laughs) First thing I said is, my bed? (laughs) He said, yeah. Man, I kind of looked at my dad. You should have seen my dad's face. My dad was like, boy, if you don't get out of here, try to take my son to bed. <laughs> For real. And he said, he said, I, I call dibs on the bed. I look at him. I'm like, man, is there something wrong with the futon? It's clean. It's comfortable. I'm like, it's my birthday. You know what I mean? It's my bed. And my dad, you know, my dad stepped in because I was eight, nine years old. I didn't really know how to handle it. My dad, my dad was like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so, uh, why don't you just take the futon? And, and the kid really does look at my dad and he goes, why can't I have the bed? And, man, I'm shook in this moment. I'm a little shocked, to be honest with you, because my dad, growing up, I don't know how your parents were. My dad taught me a very core lesson when you go into somebody else's house, that when you go to somebody else's houses, when you stay the night, when you are in someone other's house, you don't demand something that's theirs because it doesn't belong to you. It was a lesson I learned very early on. And so for me and my dad, we were shocked because I knew, hey, if I stay the night at somebody's house, I'm not just going to demand something that's theirs because it belongs to them. And at eight years old, 
It was eye-opening for me to realize that I struggle with the same things just like that kid did. One of the things I wrote down in my notes is this. Entitlement happens when you believe you're owed something that actually belongs to somebody else. Entitlement. It's a big deal. And man, it's no secret that our generation can be a little entitled too, even as adults. We might not be demanding other people's beds at a sleepover, but I tell you what we do, we feel like we are owed something from other people. Or even more dangerous, what I want to get into tonight is we believe and we live and we act as if we're owed something from the Lord. Have you ever been there before? Can we be honest in church? You ever been there before? You ever felt like you're owed something, like you're entitled to something, like you deserve something and you got to be humbled by the Lord because he doesn't play those games? <laughs> he ain't going to let you walk around and live in that. Man, I've been there. Now tonight, I want to talk about entitlement and gratitude scripturally. And I want to take that illustration, I want to flip it on its head, and I want to say it to you this way. And then I, this will be on the screen. Here it is. Idolizing self is when you believe you're owed the glory that actually belongs to God himself. Idolizing self is when you believe you're owed the glory that actually belongs to God himself. As funny as it is to think about demanding somebody else's bed when you have a perfectly good food time, and we, we, we do, we feel as a generation that we are often entitled to things, that we're owed things. But Scripture is very clear. Scripture doesn't play any games. And before we get to our main text, I'm going to give you a few verses on thankfulness. Scripture is very clear that we are to live lives as college students, as young adults, of thankfulness, of gratitude, of singing praises to the Lord. I'll give you this. Daniel 2, verse 23. This is Daniel's prayer. One thing he says here. Look at this. It'll be on the screen with me, if you will. It says, I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Not only that, but you jump to the New Testament. Paul, in all of his letters, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, Paul has a lot to say about thankfulness. One of the big ones is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, says this, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's very clear, a thankful life. Now here's, to me, what was almost my main text tonight, but the Lord kind of shifted gears via my wife Hannah because she's very wise. This was almost my main text, and I want to give it to you because I really want you to think about this one for a moment, Aliana. Not just her, but everybody. I want you to think about this one. In Colossians chapter 2, when Paul's dealing with heresy, when he's dealing with false teaching, when they are, there's a blend of a lot of different teachings, sorry about that, when there's a blend of a lot of different teachings that are influencing some heresy and some false theolo theological truths that are happening, Paul's exhortation to not be taken captive by deceit and human tradition and empty philosophy is preceded by this command right here. Look at this. It says this. This is Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. So then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Woo! Overflowing with gratitude. That's tough. Let me ask you, do our lives overflow with gratitude? Let's be honest. Let's be honest in church. 
Do our lives overflow with gratitude? Like, are we just walking around and people are like, man, you can't hang around that person because they have too much gratefulness. They are just overflowing with gratefulness. It can't be controlled. Does your life look that way? Because I I look at mine and I think there's something left to be desired when it comes to gratefulness and thankfulness. But understand, college students, it's very clear from Scripture that we are to live lives overflowing with gratitude for what God has given us. But what do we often do? We complain and we whine and we moan. If we're honest, woe is me whenever something happens and we're not grateful for the good that we have. One of the quotes I heard that I told our volunteers a few moments ago is this. Whenever you're complaining is at an all-time high Your worship is at an all-time low. It's true today as it was in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. And when you look at your life and you see complaining, when I look at my life and I see complaining, whenever it's at an all-time high, our worship is probably at an all-time low. So where we pick up tonight is Daniel chapter 3. And what I want to do is I want to pick apart the idea of entitlement and gratitude. My prayer tonight is not to just beat you over the head and tell you to be thankful all night long. That doesn't help anybody. My prayer is to pick apart what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and how we as believers can overcome entitlement and begin to live lives of gratefulness. Is that okay with everybody? Can we do that, right? Every single one of us know we should be thankful. Let's put that on the table. Let's get it out of the way. Let's get practical and talk about how. What are the signs? How do we overcome this? What do we do in our lives? Now, here's what you need to know. Whether you're familiar with the book of Daniel or not, here's what you need to know for where we are tonight. Obviously, Daniel is a big character in the Old Testament. The lion's den, he 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 sticks to his faith in Babylon. He's known as determined. Daniel's a big deal in the Old Testament. He's, He's big. But we're not focusing on Daniel tonight. We're focusing on Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And in this chapter, of course, this is the very famous chapter where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fire. That's going to be part of the sermon tonight. That's not our landing point. But what I really want to focus on is King Nebuchadnezzar and and what we see in him when it comes to him building this 90-foot statue of himself. Now, the book of Daniel was written between 540 and 530 B.C. Up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has conquered Judah and deported people into Babylon, including Daniel, including a lot of the people we're going to see. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that only Daniel can interpret. And then we come to chapter 3, and we see Nebuchadnezzar, the very first thing he does is he wants to build a statue that's 90 feet high, made of gold, and 9 feet wide for himself. Now, this is entitlement. This is pride. This is selfishness. There's a lot of things that happen in this. Let's look at it and say, how does this apply to our lives tonight? So if you will, look with me at chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Starting in verse 1, it says this of chapter 3 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Skip down to verse 4, if you will. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, You are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace, a blazing fire. Some people love to complain about America, and we do have issues. We have a lot of problems in America But man, can you imagine 
something like this being put on us in America, being told to bow down and worship a statue or else you'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. Can you imagine? I don't believe any of us have lived in those kind of circumstances before. Maybe you have, but man, we can't even really fathom what that would be like. So try to bring the Bible to life. Imagine you are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Imagine that you have been commanded to go against your God, to go against your faith, and to worship a golden statue of the king of Babylon. What would you do? What would I do? I mean, that's tough. That's a tough situation. Look with me at verse 7. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound, the people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and every kind of music will fall down and worship the gold statue. Verse 11, whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Can you imagine the fear that would be tempting to have here? I can remember in college being nervous to stand before my professor and ask for grace on an exam I failed. I remember the nerves and the fear of standing before my mom or dad when I got in trouble at school and having to tell them what happened, even though I know they would respond in love. Think about that moment of fear. Now, times that by 100, and imagine standing before a king who quite literally will throw you into fire if you won't worship his golden statue. Ooh, man, it gives you chills down your spine if you really place yourself in those shoes. Let's keep reading. We'll go down to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Let me give you number one. I got three things I want to walk through briefly tonight. Number one is this, the signs of entitlement. The signs of entitlement. I told you that I wanted to pick this apart with you, and I want to walk through it as slowly as we can here. The, the very first thing I want to pick apart with King Nebuchadnezzar is the signs of entitlement. Nebuchadnezzar was not a man who allowed lawbreakers to go unpunished. His reputation preceded him. It's written that he would lose sleep day and night looking to cause justice, to find justice. And he, in his mind, believes that justice is throwing anyone into the furnace who won't worship his statue, who won't worship his name. He, he is believing this. So his threat is very real as he makes it to the people. His threat is going to be backed up. We see that. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is a political power move. And I want you to understand that throughout history, in our world, politicians have done what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, that this is not necessarily something new. It was done before this. It's been done after this. 
I'll give you an example to this. Throughout history, we've seen politicians blend together spiritual allegiance and national allegiance as one. One big, big example is this. This will be on the screen. So in 1936, a head of the youth program for Nazi Germany said this. Look at this. He said, if we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. Ooh, a stout. Not only that, in 1960, when the president of Ghana had a larger-than-life statue made of himself, the inscription, so it's 1960, it's not that long ago, the inscription on that statue read this right here. It said, Seek ye first the political kingdom, and all other things shall be added unto you. It was built in 1960. The statue was demolished in 1966. This has been something that's happened before. King Nebuchadnezzar is looking to blend a spiritual allegiance with a national allegiance, and we've seen it done throughout human history. I want you to understand, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar has a pride issue. Have you ever had a pride issue? I have. Pride's no fun to live in. It's really hard to read the Word of God when you're struggling with pride, isn't it? Because, man, it convicts. It burns. It encourages, but it also convicts you when you are struggling with pride. And I'll tell you this, we're called to reflect God's image. Nebuchadnezzar is a little too obsessed with his own image. That's why his statue is a reflection of him. Not anything else but him. So you and I can ask the question, do we reflect the image that we were created to portray or are we too consumed with the image that we want and the image that we have? Nebuchadnezzar's looked in the mirror a little too long. I mean, students, just imagine thinking so highly of yourself that you'd build a 90-foot statue of yourself. And then not only that, but then commanding the people under you to worship it and to bow at an immediate obedience. Literally, when it says that they heard it and they fell, the translation there is that they were falling as they heard it. So they would hear the sound, and immediately as they were hearing the sound, they were falling down to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar was demanding not just obedience, but immediate obedience to worship him. It's a pride issue. Now, you and me, in 2022, if I can be honest with you tonight, we don't necessarily build golden statues of ourselves. But what we do, though, if we're honest, is we build ginormous social media platforms that display ourselves very tall, very high. We have an image of ourselves, just like Nebuchadnezzar does. It's something every single one of us struggles with in this room. We care very deeply how others see us. We care very deeply what we portray and how we're seen. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves not necessarily throwing up a golden statue, but creating online on social media an image of ourselves that's not necessarily true. Why? So that people will think of us the way we want them to think of us. I've known people who have lied about how much money they make or how their career is going or how their family's going, who will just lie about it all the time, who will lie about how they're really doing. Why? Because they want to keep up an image of themselves. If that golden statue ever got dirty, if it ever got damaged, you better believe Nebuchadnezzar is jumping to the scene to repair it. Why? Because he doesn't want his image to be disdained. And guess what? We, our natural reflex, whenever we struggle with something, is to jump to cover it up. Why? Because we don't want our image to be disdained. We have a view of ourselves and we want to stick to it. That's how this applies to us in 2022. 
Understand, we don't have the golden statues lying around of ourselves, but we do have an image that we want to cling towards. And that's dangerous. What is that for you? I mean, in your life in 2022, like what is it for you that you are terrified, terrified to give up, to let go? I know what it is for me. Do you know what it is for you? I wrote this down in my notes. Entitlement is always preceded by thinking too highly of yourself than you should. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and me. When we have a healthy view of Jesus, how can we think too highly of ourselves? I'll tell you this. Here's why that ends up hurting you. I told you tonight, I don't just want to tell you to be humble and be grateful and close the word. Here's why that hurts you. When you think too highly of yourself, when you're struggling with pride, how that comes back to bite you, why you can't just walk around and live in that is because, and I don't want you to miss this, when you think too highly of yourself, you'll expect everybody else to think that highly of you too. And they don't. And they won't. And guess where you end up? When you think too highly of yourself and the other people around you don't share that view of you, you don't really like them that much. Some of us would hate them. Like we really don't like people who don't think of us as highly as we think about ourselves. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint. When they don't bow and worship to him, his response is, let's throw them in the fire. Some of us, when, when people don't worship us or praise us or think we're just amazing, we want to throw them in the fire. In other words, we want to throw them in a cage and never speak to them and never talk about them. That's how pride comes back and gets you. So college students, I see so many of you struggle with it all the time. You think a little too highly of you, and when others don't match that, it wrecks you. It brings you down. It causes you so much pain, so much turmoil. That's why a lot of service-level friendships don't work out. To be honest, a lot of service-level friendships in our lives don't work out, and it's because we want them to serve us instead of serving those around us. If we lived out in Ephesians 4, verse 2, mindset with the people in our lives, our lives would be so different. Ephesians 4, verse 2 says this, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So in your life, do you look to serve or to be served? King Nebuchadnezzar's goal is to, is to be served. What is it for you? What is it for me? One of the moments that's clearest to me in Scripture with this is the Israelites when they're in the wilderness. And they get out of slavery, and Moses is leading them through the desert. And they've just seen God do an incredible work. They've seen God do a miracle, like they've witnessed it firsthand. They've seen him part the Red Sea. They've seen him close the water over their enemies. They've seen God do an amazing work. And then it comes to Exodus chapter 17. They're thirsty. Look at this, if you will. It says this in Exodus 17. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. But there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Conscience, 
I want this to sink in for a moment. For them in this passage, the same God who parted a sea for them is the God they didn't trust for a cup of water. The same God that parted a sea is the same God they didn't trust for a cup of water. Because they felt entitled. I deserve water and I deserve it now. I remember telling my parents, I deserve a new basketball, I deserve it now. I deserve Jordans and I deserve it now. I can tell you where that got me. A whooping out back. I didn't get no J's by saying I was determined or deserving of Jordans. My parents put me in my place. And listen, I'll tell you, college students, there's a warning to all of us. The Lord will put us in our place. We feel like we're owed something. I deserve a spouse and I deserve it now. I deserve a raise. I deserve a career. I deserve recognition and I deserve it now. But ultimately, the truth is you and I, apart from Christ, are broken down sinners in need of help, in need of restoration, in need of hope. And when we have Christ, we have everything. The most damaging part is that we're not thankful for it. Man, I'll never forget for me the, the third Honduras mission trip I went on. I've been to Honduras three times. We went to Tegucigalpa when we went there. And for me, when I went to Honduras, I was so excited to go on mission and to experience a new culture. And there was culture shock for sure. And we got to Tegucigalpa, and one of the things that we did in Honduras every year is we would go throughout the villages in the mountains, and we would share the gospel with people. We would talk to them about Jesus. We'd knock on the doors. If they had a door, some of the homes didn't have doors. Some of the homes didn't have windows. Some of the homes didn't have running water. And we would go to these homes, and we would talk to these families. We would talk to these people. And I'll never forget one of the families that we stopped to. We walked inside the home. It was raining outside. We sat down in the living room. Of course, there's not windows. You just hear the rain coming down, and we're talking with this woman. And what was so incredible is we're talking to her, and she's a believer. She knows the Lord. She was super encouraging about it. She was encouraging to us. Me and one of our life group teachers and a couple other students were in the living room talking to her. She's like, man, it's it's so cool what y'all doing. I'm a believer. I know the Lord. And we're like, man, praise God. That's awesome. You know, like we encouraged her for a little bit, gave her a little bit of scripture, told her why we were there, told her about Impacto, the church that we work with while we're in Tsugusagapa. And then she said something that caught me off guard. And it reminded me that what we think we're owed or our timetable may not necessarily be God's timetable, but even though God doesn't do things on our time, his time is always better than ours anyway. Amen. She looks at us. This is what she says. She says, I want you all to know for about a decade, I've been praying for God to send someone to our house. For a decade, I've been praying for God to send someone to our house, a missionary, a Christian. And we're sitting there. She's a believer. We're like, you know, why? You know, like, what could we do for you, you know? And she looks at us with the most serious face, and she says, for, for a decade, my husband has been an alcoholic, and he doesn't know Jesus, and he's not saved. And for over a decade, I've prayed for his salvation. She shared the gospel with him. He rejected every time. And she told us that the Lord laid on her heart, it would have to be somebody else to come and share the gospel with her husband. And we're sitting there, and I'm on edge because that's obviously like a daunting task, right? Like, I'm I'm like, I don't know if we're the ones, you know, like, glad we're here. We'll do our best kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, that's some pressure. And uh, we're looking around. I'm like, I don't see her husband in here, you know? And uh, 
She goes, would you share the gospel with my husband? I think that's why God brought you here. And we're like, yeah, of course. And she goes, he's out back. And so, man, we go out back, and it's like going down the steps, man, it's just crazy. I mean, you just have these, these cement blocks. You're going down cement blocks. You're stepping on buckets. I mean, you're just going down these steps. It's kind of dangerous. And we get down there to the bottom. Albert was his name. I still remember his name. We get down to the bottom, and he's doing some yard work or whatever, and we get down there. And we start to have a conversation with him about Jesus. And the whole time, all I can think of is, this woman's been praying for a decade. This better be a good gospel presentation. <laughs> I was like, I'm not missing a single verse. I've got the Roman road down. I mean, we're sharing like every single verse we can think of. I'm like, I'm not messing up these presentations. <laughs> I've got this. You know, we've got this. The Lord's got this. And we're sharing with him. One of the life group teachers, we're sharing with him because he knows Spanish. So he's translating. We're talking to him about the gospel. And man, I kid you not, all I can think of the whole time is this woman's been praying for a decade for her husband to get saved. How incredible would it be if he got saved right here, right now? And as we're standing there, after like a 30-minute conversation, he repents of his sins and gives his life to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Isn't that amazing? I was shook. I had chills. I'm telling you. I was shook out of my mind. I went back in the house. We told her. She was freaking out, throwing stuff around the house, throwing a celebration. If she had some confetti cannons, she would have been popping them jokers off. She loved it. It's new life. It's worth celebrating. It's incredible. She's been praying for over a decade. Can you imagine how many years went by that she could have lost hope? <laughs> could you know how many years she could have said, God, I deserve a husband that knows the Lord. I'm owed a husband that knows the Lord. I'm entitled to a husband that knows the Lord. Better yet, I'm entitled to a husband who knows the Lord now. Yet all she did for 10 years, I'm sure there were moments of frustration, but all she did for 10 years was just pray for somebody to be sent to that home who would tell them about Jesus. It wasn't her timetable, but it was God's timetable, and she rejoiced all the same. College students, I tell you that story because some of you believe you're owed something from God, and you don't just believe you're owed something, you believe you're owed it on your timetable. My question to you is, do you believe God's timetable is far better than yours anyway? Do you believe God is really faithful to do what you need? That if God can part a Red Sea, he can give you a cup of water when you're thirsty. Because if we went around this room and talked about if we've ever really had a night where we didn't have a roof over our head, I'm sure there are some of you in here. Oh, I know. If we went around this room and talked about if you've ever missed a meal, some of us have never missed a meal. Some of you have. I know. There's been tough times. But for a lot of us in this, in this room, we drove here tonight because we have cars and praise God that you have a vehicle to get around because there's a lot of people in the world who don't have a vehicle. A lot of people in the world who don't have a roof tonight. A lot of people who don't have water tonight. A lot of people who don't have clothes tonight. But what do we do as Christians? We're too walking around in pride and feeling entitled and feeling like we're owed something to be grateful for what God has given us. Ten years. I want to challenge you tonight, college students. Whatever you believe you're owed or entitled to, would you lay it down at the feet of Jesus? Not only the signs of entitlement, let me give you number two, the consequences of entitlement. The consequences of entitlement. Whenever we begin to draw people's attention towards us and our image and ourselves, we know that we're beginning to feel and experience entitlement and pride and feeling like we're owed something from God or from people. But what are the specific consequences of entitlement? I'm going to go through this quickly because I want to get to point three. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's entire existence is to be served, not to serve. 
Jesus directly goes against this model through his life and in Mark chapter 10. Completely speaks against this. In fact, Jesus, I don't know what was going through his mind, but he talks in Mark chapter 10 about rulers and kings and tyrants who lord power over people instead of instead of loving and serving them. Look at what he says here. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Jesus, it says, called them over and said to them, his disciples, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. That sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, does it not? It's a cool cross-reference. I'm not saying he's reverencing Nebuchadnezzar, but it's a cool cross-reference. Old Testament to New Testament. Jesus says, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Let's pause right there. Greatness is not bad. Striving to be great is not a sin. I come from a coaching background. Greatness is a word we used a lot in the public school basketball environment. It's good to strive for greatness. I can't tell you how many times I told young athletes, young basketball players, hey, you should want to be great. You should desire to be great. It's not condemned to be great. The question is, what does that really mean? Who's getting the glory? Who's getting the praise from you being great? See, God has given you talents and skills and abilities and a testimony But do you use those things in a way that's great to point to God who's great, or do you use it in a way to point to yourself who's not so great? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have fallen short. But for you and I, man, you have skills, you have abilities, you have blessings, you have a story. You have talents that I don't have. Some of you can sing. I wish I could sing. I can't. I'd love to write a love song to my wife, but it'd sound terrible singing it to her. I'd have to hire somebody else to do it. You know how embarrassing it is to have to hire another man to sing a love song to your wife that you wrote? I can't do it. I ain't got that kind of humility, man. I can't. I'd have to sing it, and then it'd be terrible. Amen. (laughs) Some of you can sing. Do you use that to bring glory to God? Some of you can write. Do you bring glory to God through that? Greatness is not condemned. It depends on who's getting the glory, though. Be great for the Lord. Goes on to say this. I got off there. Praise the Lord, though. Glad I did. Hallelujah. Verse 44. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Nebuchadnezzar's playing a dangerous game. If you believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man, died and rose again, he's playing a dangerous game because Nebuchadnezzar has placed himself in God's position and only God can fill God's position. How many of you know that God is not only good, but he's really good at being God, right? Not only is he good, not only is he great, but he knows what he's doing in being God. If you and I try to take on that job, that's a miserable attempt. We can't fall short every time. You know it and I know it. Nebuchadnezzar is playing a dangerous game. In fact, I'll tell you this, the consequence ultimately of entitlement is self-idolatry. That's where you'll end up every single time. It's preceded by thinking a little little too highly of yourself. Then you begin to act like you're owed something and you deserve something. And then you launch into, I want to be careful saying this, you launch into worshiping yourself instead of worshiping the Lord. 
That's where it ends up. You end up in living in idolatry. In fact, self-idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar, when he says, I'm not sure what verse it was. I didn't write the reverence in my notes. But when he says, if you do not worship, you'll be thrown immediately into the fiery furnace. What God will save you? Nebuchadnezzar has basically taken God's law and adopted it for himself. He's telling them, hey, you're not going to have any God besides me. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. You shall have no other gods before me. Me, my statue, I am God. You will worship me. And there's nobody who can save you. Isn't that crazy? That's why I love God's word. Speaks to you, encourages you, convicts you, while at the same time, man, it's entertaining. (laughs) It's a wild ride. Especially when you get a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's where we land. Your life can change in one second. Your life can change in one second. In fact, show of hands, get your shoulder moving. How many of you know that your life can change in one second? Now hold it high. All the way up. There it is. A little bit higher. Come on, reach for the ceiling. There it is. Thank you. I see some of y'all, man. Y'all like this. Come on, man. Ain't y'all excited to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. Life's hard. Life has its struggles. Life's tough. But man, we're here worshiping, talking about God's word. Let me say something. Your life can change in one second. I love the Avengers. Now, Marvel, Marvel's on a wild ride right now. I'm not going to lie to you. Marvel's on a wild path. For me, I love the Captain America days, the Iron Man days, the OG days. I'm still trying to stay up to date. But ultimately, man, I love the OG days. It don't get no better than Civil War and Infinity War for me, man. I just, I love it, man. I love it. And those days, right, it's just incredible. Yeah, that's the loudest some of y'all got. I'm disappointed. <laughs> We've been talking about the Lord all night. I say something about Iron Man. Woo, yeah. Spilled him a statue. Just playing. <laughs> some of y'all got loud for that. I love, I love the OG days, man. Infinity War, in-game, it doesn't get better than that. Now, they're, they're still doing high-quality stuff, but it's, it's, you know, it's not the same. It's good, but it's not the same. So, man, for me, in Infinity War, spoiler alert, it's been four years. You should have seen it by now, though, so... <laughs> If this spoils it for you, shame on you for not seeing it. But in Infinity War, obviously, and it's the climax of the movie, so seriously, if you haven't watched it, like actually close your ears because I feel really bad on the real. In the most pivotal moment of the movie, everything changes by Thanos doing what? Yeah, that's right. You got it. Wow. We're alive now. Well, okay, we're here now. Let's just put on Infinity War and watch that, I guess. We're here now. My goodness, I ask you to raise your hand, y'all like, I'm like, what did Thanos do? <laughs> like, it's a pop quiz. My goodness gracious. Gold stars for everybody. Come see me afterwards. Thanos, what does he do? He gets all the Infinity Stones. He's an incredible villain, by the way. And he snaps. Thor tries to stop him, doesn't get there in time. You should have gone for the head. And then, boom, snaps his fingers. People start disappearing. People start turning into dust. The whole world changes. The whole universe changes. Everything. Stab of the fingers. For me, that was a chilling moment in the movie, not because of really the Infinity Stones or, you know, all the side characters disappearing because they kept all the original ones, so obviously. You know, you have all the B-list Marvel stars kind of disappearing. It wasn't really that for me, <laughs> you know. It was a chilling moment for me in the movie because that's exactly how fast life changes. It's a snap of a fingers. I think they nailed it with that because your life can change that quick, that quick. And I've never forgotten that. For me, when I was, I guess, 10 years old, 
I had a moment like that where life changed in one phone call, and it's not fun. I was 10 years old. I think I was in the movies. I, I was coming out, and we got a phone call, and my grandfather had just passed away. He was a runner. He ran. He was, he was trying to get back in shape. He was trying to get ready to run and, and do another marathon, and he pushed himself too hard at a park. And when he pushed himself too hard, he had a heart attack. And they said he was gone before he hit the ground. This was almost 20 years ago. And for me, I've probably shared illustrations of my papa before is what we called him. He was a best friend to me. Would bring me McDonald's every Friday at Bartlett Elementary. Would hang out with me. Would buy comic books. The reason why I love Spider-Man and Marvel is because of my papa. Because of him. Because he loved him. And we got that phone call that he had a heart attack. He was gone before he hit the ground. I'll never forget in that moment, literally understanding the truth and the reality of life is that everything we have, the loved ones we have, the blessings we have can be taken with one phone call and one snap. One snap. How I know I I caught that lesson, because I wasn't just like a brilliant 10-year-old. I didn't write that down like, oh, I understand life, you know? Me and my aunt were standing outside about two weeks later. We're outside, kicking a soccer ball, doing whatever. And I heard ambulance sirens. I was 10 years old. So what I told my aunt. I heard ambulance sirens. And, of course, the ambulance went to the park two weeks before to get my pawpaw. So I knew that sound in my mind. And when I heard the ambulance sirens, I looked at my aunt, and this is what I said to her, 10 years old. Can't make it up. I looked at her. I said, mm, somebody's life could be changing right now. Somebody's life could be changing right now. That's all I said. And she looked at me. She's told me that story for years, and I've never forgotten it because at 10 years old, I started to understand the truth that one phone call, one snap of the finger can take away that which you are most thankful for and joyful for and appreciative for. My question is, what are those things to you? What are you grateful for? What are you thankful for tonight? What if it was taken away? Did you thank the Lord for it? If a loved one was taken away from you tomorrow, did you pray and thank God for them anyways? That's a hard question, I know. But your job, your career, whatever it is for you, if it was taken away, did you thank God for it anyways? One second. If there's a motivating factor from just a side of being commanded by Scripture to be thankful, here's a motivation to be thankful. It can be taken away in the blink of an eye. Are you thankful? Do you want to live a life where you're overflowed with gratitude instead of complaining? Do you want that? Do you desire that? Tonight, if you walk out those doors and you're a little bit more grateful for God's word, for Jesus Christ, for your salvation, if you had that, if you don't know Jesus, tonight's the night. If you walk out those doors a little bit more grateful for your loved ones, your, your friends, your job, your car, then praise the Lord. Successful night. And man, I pray that for you. My team prays that for you. Let me give you the last thing. Look with me at verse 16. It says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you. Now, here's verse 18. Here's a powerful, powerful verse on gratitude, the moment we've been building towards. They say this. But even if he does not rescue us 
We want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Number three is this, the goodness of gratitude. The goodness of gratitude. Not only can we look at the signs of entitlement, the consequences of entitlement, but tonight I want to point you towards the goodness of gratitude. When we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a powerful truth to take away tonight. Yes, they're saved in the fire. Yes, pre-incarnate Jesus, believed by many, is standing in the fire with them. There was another in the fire, right? Standing next to me. Like we sing that, we love it, we worship it. We're like, yes, amen. Like that's true. Praise God. What if they hadn't been rescued? If they hadn't been rescued, we know what would have happened. They still would have praised the Lord. Why? Because, here it is, don't miss this. I'm telling you, come in close. Don't miss this. This is massive. Even though they trusted God's ability, they didn't assume to know God's will. Even though they trusted God's ability, they didn't assume to know God's will. Which means, whether God did what they desired or not, he's still God. And they're still going to be grateful. That's radical faith. That's a faith I want to have. I hope that's a faith you want to have. In other words, even if they burn alive in the fire, they're still worshiping God because he's good enough. And somehow there will be glory coming to his name from their death. Can you imagine that? We see it in Acts. We see it play out with Paul and Acts and Peter and the disciples. So for you, whatever you're praying for, whatever you're thankful for, there is so much goodness in gratitude because it takes the weight off of demanding things from God and it allows you to just sit in the presence of God and be grateful and be thankful. Tonight, I want to ask you, What is it you're grateful for, and are you telling the Lord you're grateful for it? Ultimately, are you grateful for who he is, not just what he can or can't do? Are you grateful for his character and who he is, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love? Are you thankful for that?